Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. My name is Rob Dalrymple. I'm the pastor here at Northminster. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. If this is your first time here, or if you've never done it and you know who you are, please fill out one of these Connect cards and let us know who you are. Get the information, uh, phone number, address, emails, uh, social security number, credit cards, things like that. So we can have that information for our own uh, um, use. Uh, I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to be studying, uh, continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. In our study of the Gospel of Luke, we've been seeing Jesus challenging his people, his followers, to be the people of God to make the kingdom of God known to the nations. We've talked for many weeks now that we are not saved just for ourselves. We have been saved and called and chosen by Christ so that we can be his ambassadors to the nations. The Gospel of Luke then, in the second portion of the Gospel of Luke, uh, is going to begin Jesus' uh, um, journey from Dr- to, to the city of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the disciples think he's going to become the king. And he is. He's going to become the king on a cross, however, and that they don't understand. So in the second portion of the Gospel of Luke, he's preparing and equipping his disciples for what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to die, which they don't understand. And then what's going to happen after that? You're going to go out and take my kingdom and the gospel of my kingdom to the nations. And they have to be prepared. They have to be equipped. They have to be trained as disciples of Jesus. And uh, what we're going to be doing here in the next few weeks, we want to uh, uh, inform you of this now, is this. Uh, We want to exhort all of us to become disciples of Jesus Christ so that we can take the gospel to the nations. And here's the reality. Discipleship, becoming a disciple of Jesus, a dynamic follower of Jesus, Sunday morning is not enough. It, It just isn't. Coming Sunday morning is great. Gathering with God's people is great. Worshiping together is great. Giving, serving, learning, being fed. All that is great, but it's simply not enough. There's six and a half more days in the week where all temptations and trials and and things are going to come. So we're going to exhort us as a congregation now over the next, by the end of August, uh, that we want to have everybody in our congregation have at least two regular connection points. One of which should be a Sunday morning service. One of which should be the gathering of God's people, the larger body, where we can serve, uh, um, benefit one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another, and worship. And we would like the second to either be uh, a a regular gathering in a small group or a Bible study that includes prayer and studying and fellowship. And or, your second option then is a Bible study or a small group, and your third option then is Sunday service. Sunday service being the first. Your third option then is to be in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. And I really think that we need to be doing all three. We need to be discipling other people and we need to be discipled by someone else. So if you're young in the faith, you should be having a disciple relationship with somebody else. Uh, If you're mature in the faith, you should have maybe somebody else that you're alongside in a peer relationship or somebody that's discipling you, but you should also be discipling somebody else. And ideally we're doing all three. Regular weekly worship, 
regular Bible study and fellowship and small group, and regularly dis regular discipleship program. So at the end of this month, end of, uh, of August, beginning of September, we're going to launch before you a bunch of options for small groups, Bible study groups, discipleship groups, etc. And if you want to get going on that now, fill out a connection card and let us know. I'm interested in being discipled, and, and we'll take care of that, uh, that now. And if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. I believe it's page 737 in your pew Bibles. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, page 737 in your pew Bibles. All right, here's my question for us to begin this morning, and that is this. What is more important? What one does, what one has, or who one is? What one does, what one has, or who one is? Now we're in a church, so everybody knows the answer. The answer is pretty easy, right? The, we, we know, oh, it's who one is. You know, Jesus is more concerned with who one is. But here's my question to you now, and that's this. How much of our lives actually reflect that as being the correct answer? And as we know the correct answer is who we are. But what if we were to, to do a video recording of a week in your life? And at the end of the week, we all sat down to watch every moment of your week to discern how your life reflects the answer to that question. What would be the answer then? The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Jesus begins, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Meanwhile, a, a crowd of thousands had gathered, and that they were so much that they were trampling on one another. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the, in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. Jesus tells the disciples at the beginning here, and notice he's speaking to his disciples. A crowd of thousands have gathered, but Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Watch out, be on your guard for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, if many of you probably have heard the idea that hypocrisy in the, in the Greek world meant play acting, you know, pretending to be this when in reality being this. That's probably not the proper definition of the Greek word for hypocrisy. The, the, the Greek word probably indicates someone that's just simply misdirected in their understanding of God. They think that going this way is actually pleasing to God when it's not. God wants us to go this way. And of course, in particular, Jesus has the Pharisees in mind. The, the religious leaders. You see, commonly we come under the impression that the Pharisees were simply concerned with, with, with uh, this outward action, but inwardly they didn't really care. The Pharisees actually really thought they were doing the right thing, and we need to understand the Pharisees in that way. They were not simply concerned only about how they're being acclaimed in society and in culture. By the way, everybody in their culture was concerned, and even in ours in many ways, with what others think about us. The Pharisees were simply radically misdirected in their understanding about God. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they were concerned in chapter 11 with their legal observances and not with justice and the love of God. Jesus is going to go on to describe the Pharisees as, somebody who, as people who don't understand the true meaning of the Scriptures. As a result, they only have a surface righteousness. And then he warns the disciples about such behavior. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Now yeast, or some translations will say leaven, 
uh, is simply what, what, what it's added to, to, to flour and, and, and all the mix. Well, it, it, it's living, and so as it, because it's living, it begins to feed off everything in there, and it spreads through the whole batch of dough. As a result, yeast or leaven became a, a, a metaphor for the evil influences, something that affects everything around. Just a little yeast, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, will leaven the whole batch of dough. A little evil influence in the church will corrupt the whole congregation. We have to be careful, Paul says. The first point, then, is that Jesus is far more concerned with who we are. He's far more concerned with who we are. Now, if we go on to chapter 12, 1 through 11, 1 through 12 or so, we're going to find out that Jesus is going to tell his disciples uh, that he's concerned with who they are, and the result of, being, of who they are and being transformed by, like Jesus is going to result in persecution and suffering. And be careful, he says. Don't worry about it. Verse 8, he says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. Verse 9, whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. I care about who you are, and the result of that is going to be you're going to be put on trial before the world, and if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you don't, then I'll disown you, even before the angels of God. Now let's go to verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And the rich man thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up for them, things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Uh, a man asked Jesus to be an arbitrator over, over an inheritance. Now, in the biblical world, at the time of Jesus, inheritance meant uh, that the, the family's estate is divided amongst the sons. The firstborn son gets a double inheritance. So likely, this is not the firstborn who's complaining. It's the second or third son saying, I I'm not getting a fair shakedown. My brother, who's in charge of the inheritance, is not giving me a fair shakedown. Jesus, help me out. Jesus' answer is, wait a minute, I'm not a judge of such matters. But the problem was, as Jesus indicates, the man's question arose out of his greed. He wanted more wealth. He wanted more abundance. And Jesus answers him, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. So the next point then is this. What, who one is, is more important than what one has. Who one is, is more important than what one has. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This, amount, this man has a life who's oriented around his possessions and his greed. And if you look at the passage carefully, note how often the man says, I, 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 in, in the parable. Jesus says, you fool. A biblically speaking, by the way, a fool is someone who denies God. A fool is someone who doesn't understand that God's in control of life. I'll build these barns and I'll put all my storage there and I'll be great and fine and dandy and then I forgot that God's in charge. So now chapter 12, 
verse 22. And this might be one of the most significant passages in Scripture, by the way. I, I like Matthew's version of this story, and I often encourage many to memorize Matthew 16, uh, 18 through 35, 19 through 34, that, that section there. But this is the same, ver same passage, but in Luke's words. So listen carefully as we read through Luke chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I will tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about, rest, about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will drink, eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moss destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, and will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Then Peter asked, Lord, are, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all of his possessions. Note that chapter 12, verse 20, 22 begins with, Jesus said to his disciples. A man asked Jesus, Lord, help me you know, be an arbitrator in my family dispute. Jesus tells a parable to the man. Right about a guy who builds big barns and says, life is not more, it's more than food and riches. And then he says to his disciples, so now again the third time he turns back to his disciples, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Uh, the word therefore in, in uh, this translation here uh, is, uh, it means on account of this. On account of the fact that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, then don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. If life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, then there's no need to worry about life, food, and clothing. And remember the last time in chapter 11, Jesus taught us how to pray. Father, give us this day our daily bread. 
And he went on in, in Luke's version after the Lord's Prayer, and he said, look, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your father give what's good to those who ask? If life consists of more than possessions, then we have nothing to worry about because we have a good, good father, as we just sang about. Jesus' first argument is, for life is more important than food. Life is more than food and the body than clothing. Uh, and then he gives an illustration. Consider the ravens. Now, if you think about ravens, by the way, they're, they're, in the biblical world, they're unclean animals. They're among the least appreciated of all the birds. I mean, think about it. You, you see a hawk, you're like, oh, that's a beautiful hawk. Uh, even a, a hummingbird, oh, look, I saw a hummingbird. Like, you see a raven, you're like, it's a big black bird. I mean, they're a little bit better, better than crows, but a black bird, that's, that's all it is. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Verse 25, he says, if, Who are you, why worrying, can add a single hour to your life? The second argument is. The first argument is, don't worry about food or clothing because life is more than food and clothes. And God cares for the ravens. The second argument is, and worrying cannot extend your life. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your lifespan? It ain't doing you any good. By the way, modern medicine tells us that worrying actually can diminish your lifespan. Consider the lilies, he gives an illustration now. Not even Solomon was clothed like, like the lilies. If you're not aware, Solomon was perhaps the richest man in the biblical world. By the way, you might note, the book of Samuel says that Solomon had 666 talents of gold every year. Solomon's wealth was not portrayed in a positive light by the biblical writers, if you know what the number 666 seems to indicate. But if, if Solomon was clothed with all that majesty and, 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 and the lilies are clothed better than Solomon and God cares for the lilies, then what are we worried about? Third argument, he says, don't set your heart on food or clothes because that's what the nations of the world worry about. The pagans worry about these things. The world, and God knows what you need. Don't do what the pagan does. His fourth argument is God knows what you need. And as we said in chapter 11, if we have a good father who's better than our fathers, and if our fathers give us good gifts, then how much more will the Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So then he turns to his disciples and he says, guess what I want you to do? Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Now you've got to remember in the first century world how this would have sounded. In, in the Roman world of the first century, you know, your economy and gifts was to secure your place in society. You give a gift because then someone now owes you. You get something out of this gift. Uh, out of, if I give you something, you're now in my debt. You, you're obligated. You owe me. If I give something to the city, then I'm prestigious in the city. I might get a royal office or a, a, a significant place on the, on the city council. Jesus says, no, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. The poor can't pay us back. The poor don't do us any good. The poor don't gain us any advantage. In God's economy, Jesus says, God is the supreme giver. And God gives, regardless of the recipient. In fact, he gives to those who are not expecting anything in return. And when we give without expecting anything in return like God, Jesus' answer is, we're repaid by God. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now he closes this section with a, a reference to the fact that uh, he's going to seemingly go away and come back. Uh, and, and when he goes away, he tells his disciples, be dressed ready for service. Uh, 
so that when the master comes back from the wedding banquet, you're not ashamed. Now, you've got to remember, the disciples don't think Jesus is going away. This isn't going to make sense to them. We're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to become the king. All is going to be fine and dandy. But it's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus, only after that this parable even begins to make sense. And now Luke records it for us. Oh, the master has gone away, and he's going to come back. And it'll be good for those, when the master comes back, for us to be dressed and ready and, and, and prepared. Now, interestingly, he describes the master as coming back as actually when he comes back, he's going to throw a banquet for the servants. Look at the passage carefully. When the master comes back, it'll be good for those servants who, whom his master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. The master comes and becomes the servant, and the servants become the master, enjoying a banquet at the hands of the master. So be dressed. Keep your lamps ready. Keep them lit. This is the opposite of what society would have expected, verses 38 through 40. It'll be good for those servants whom his master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let himself be broken into. You also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. Again, the disciples are not, this is not going to make sense to them. And notice the next verse begins with Peter saying, Lord, are you talking to us or to them? Because they don't get it. They, they don't understand. What do you mean you're going away, coming back, we have to be prepared? What does all this mean? His answer, though, is this, to be busy doing the work of the kingdom. A, a, a thief is coming. The thief is Christ himself. But here's the reality, and that's this. If we're awake, when the thief comes, he won't steal anything from us because we're awake and we're ready. The thief is coming, that is bad news for those who are not awake, those who are not ready, those who are not prepared for the return of Christ. So Peter then asks, asks okay, Lord, uh, you know, I don't, we don't get it. Sorry to tell you, you know, a little, uh, we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. If you haven't figured that out in three years now. Are you speaking to us or to everyone? Now notice Jesus' answer. Jesus commonly answers questions that don't seem to fit the question. And the answer is, who's the faithful and wise master, uh, manager? Maybe Jesus is answering the question of Peter by saying, it's everyone. I'm speaking to everyone. Be ready. Be the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food at the, at the proper time. A, a steward, a manager, in this world, if the master went away from a large estate, the master would put a steward in charge of the estate. The steward would be in charge of the entire estate, including allotting food and resources to everybody in the household to ensure their well-being. The parable, uh, analogy in other words is, Jesus is going away and he's put us in charge. Which is my next point. God has put us in charge. He's the master, we're the stewards. And we've been put in charge of the master's household. Now when he comes back, he's telling us, we better be doing a good job. Which seems like, well wait a minute, you know, that, that, that's kind of harsh words. No, that's the words of Jesus. We better be doing a good job with what he's been giving to it, with what he's given to us. And here's the interesting point. Faithfulness is measured by caring for others 
on behalf of the master. Faithfulness is measured by caring for others on behalf of the master. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to give the same parable in the end of Matthew chapter 24. The faithful and wise steward, who's been, the master's put him in charge of his household to give their food at the proper time. Matthew chapter 25 then has three parables. Chapter 25, the parables in 25 are about, a, about a, a, a wedding and them going away and about being responsible for what you've been entrusted. And then the third parable is, when I come back, I'm going to separate everybody by the sh like sheep and goats. The sheep to everlasting life, the goats to everlasting damnation. And, you know, and the reason why is because the sheep, well, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep will go, Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? Or hungry and feed you? Or in prison and, and we didn't do that. And Jesus says, whenever you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Faithfulness is measured by caring for others on behalf of the Master. This is why I think we have to be really careful when we come to the communion table, which we'll, we'll, which we'll do next week. Because so often we think that communion represents the body of Jesus, and it's His body, and, and I need to have a, a recognition of who Jesus is. And, and there's an element of truth to that. But if you look carefully, in my opinion, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul describes the body as us. The Gospel of Matthew says, if you go to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, don't go to the altar, leave. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to the altar and present your offerings. Our responsibility is what are we doing towards one another first and foremost, and then towards the world. The master has left and he's put us in charge. And our faithfulness is determined by caring for one another. Verse 45, but suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he's not aware of. He'll come to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. Sorry for such a downer of a message here this morning, but this is the words of Jesus. We need to hear him carefully. We've been put in charge of the master's estate. And faithfulness to that charge is indicated by caring for one another and thereby caring for the world. You've heard the expression many times, we've referred to it. There are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and your life. And most people don't read the first four. The only Jesus they ever know is you, me, us. So let's go back to our opening question. Who one is, is more important than what one does and what one has, but here's the next point. Who one is affects what one does and what one has. You see, sometimes we stop with that initial question, what's more important, who one is, what one has, and what one does, and we all know the spiritual answer is who one is. And then all we focus upon is who I am. As long as I'm spiritually attuned to Christ, as long as I'm faithful, as long as I prayed, as long as I gave, as long as I bore, then I'm good to go. And Jesus answers, no, that's not enough. Because who one is affects 
what one does and what one has. So I'm going to give four points that are going to flow under this. The right action, here's, here's the point, the right action that flow from the heart include. The right actions that flow from a good heart include these four things, according to Luke chapter 12. The first point is a confession of Jesus in the midst of persecution. And, and I didn't read all of verses 1 through 12, but Jesus is going to tell his disciples that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. That if you have a right heart and you have not been influenced by the, by the leaven of the Pharisees, what's going to happen is you're going to brought, be brought before the courts. And if you confess me before the courts, I will confess you before my Father. So the right actions that flow from the heart include, number one, a confession of Jesus in the midst of persecution. Number two, a detachment from the world's goods. Being rich towards God. The result is a person who does not worry but trusts in God. The exhortation is, do not worry. After all, God cares for the birds and God cares for the grass. Worrying cannot prolong life. In fact, we know actually it doesn't pro prolong life. It shortens life. Therefore, as a result, seek the kingdom of God because the nations of the world, the pagans, seek after the things of the world. They seek food, drink, and clothes. But they have no knowledge of God. Number three, such a person gives to the poor and the needy. Such a person gives to the poor and the needy. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor, he says in chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Per provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moss destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Fourthly, we will be dressed and ready for service. We'll be dressed and ready for service. Giving them their food at the proper time. Remember, being dressed and ready for service means to care for God's people and, 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 by, and then by extension, to care for the nations and to care for the world. What does it mean to be prepared for the coming of Jesus? Jesus' answer is, sell our all of our possessions because the Master has entrusted us with His wealth. And our responsibility is to, is to give to those who are in need. So the question then becomes this, how do I learn to become good at being rich towards God and not rich towards the world? That's obviously the danger, the, the, the difficulty, the challenge. And my first response is if that we think, if we walk away from the sermon just simply saying, I just have to try harder at being faithful with the treasures of the wealth of his kingdom, we will fail. Because many of you have been in church for a, lot of a long time now. Some of you have been coming to church for 5 years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50, and you're like, I'm still struggling a lot with this rich towards the world and rich towards God thing. I, I'm just not very good at it. And my response is that we must practice. Think about it. A carpenter isn't just someone with a hammer. Not me. I'm good. No. A, a, a golfer isn't just someone with a, a set of clubs. A good cook isn't just someone who prepares a meal. A, a good preacher... Never mind, we won't go down. down, down, down. All right. um, a person is never going to become good at the things that we're striving to be good at unless we practice consistently. That's why I said at the beginning, we're going to stress at the end of, October, end of August, the beginning of September, that everybody has at least two out of three connection points on a regular basis. Weekly, church, weekly uh, attendance and in the community of God's people. 
being in a small group or Bible study group of some nature with prayer and, and studying of the Word and fellowship and community and being in a discipleship relationship, at least being discipled by somebody else, if not discipling somebody else or in a peer-to-peer -peer discipling relationship. This may come across the wrong way. I hope it doesn't. But uh, I, I have two brothers. I have, actually have a half-brother, step-brother, step-sisters. But I have two full brothers. You know, we all have those wacky family dynamics. I have two full brothers. Uh, and they don't get along that well. They get, they, they get along okay. Uh, they don't speak to each other regularly. How's that? I'm close with them both, but they're not really close with each other. Well, a, a number of years ago, about six, seven years ago, they were all, we were all together here. Um, and uh, we went out to play golf. Well, my, my middle brother is a golf professional. All right, that's what, all right. My oldest brother, he's a good athlete, but he doesn't play golf very often. So we're all playing golf, and my oldest brother hits a ball, and it's not a good shot, and he hasn't played in like two years, and he gets all angry. Right? And my, my middle brother, um, remember, they don't get along that well. So um, my middle brother is a golf professional. This looks at me and says, dude, he says, you're not good enough to get angry. <laughs> you're not good enough. See, being angry means you expect to do better. I didn't do as well as I should have, because I, but, I, but I'm, I'm better. And the answer is, no, you're not better. You don't play enough. You don't practice enough. And the same thing kind of applies with us. You know, if we're struggling and frustrated, why am I not uh, 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 growing as a disciple of Jesus? Answer, you're not practicing. I, I'm angry and I'm frustrated that, that God's not doing all these things in my life. And the answer is, you're not good enough to get angry. We need to practice and trust and learn. I'm going to put this on the screen. You're not going to have time to take all the notes, so maybe take a picture of the screen here. So here's my question. That's this. What does practicing consistently look like? And let me give you six things. Number one, daily relying upon God. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. Practicing consistently means being consistently in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Practicing consistently means regular study of the Word. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study and show oneself approved. And number four, consistent gathering of God's people. Hebrews 10.25. Do not give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Having a regular discipleship relationship. Matthew 28.19. Make disciples of all nations. And then being in relationships and situations where we can be accountable to one another. Galatians 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Jesus tells us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from our sins. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And if you have a heavenly Father, who will give you good gifts even more so than your earthly fathers, then why do you worry? Why did, God cares for the ravens. God cares for the lilies. Worrying cannot add anything to your lifespan. So instead of seeking the treasures and pleasures of the world, for which we worry and get anxious about, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Father, we come to you this morning. And we pray, Lord, that sometimes we would hear Jesus the way you desire to be heard. Sometimes we need to be slapped upside the head, not patted upon the back. 
And I think these words of Jesus are just that. You're slapping us upside the head saying, come on, get it together. Sometimes we need to be patted upon the back and encouraged and reminded that you're a good, good father. That's who you are. But sometimes we need to just be reminded that you expect more. You've given us your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask that you'll help us. You know what it's like to be human and the struggles we go through, the flesh and the anxieties and the concerns and the consternations and the fears. So help us to get rid of all that and to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not in our own understanding but in all of our ways to acknowledge you and you will make our path straight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.